Um, this, uh, this blindness accounts for a lot that's, that's going on, you, you know? Um, and I, I, what, I'm, what I'm hearing myself say frequently, hey, we good? Yeah, okay. Um, what I'm hearing myself say um, a lot recently, and I think even over the last probably two years, is like, you know, that's what's wrong with the world over there, and they're, they're what's wrong with the world, and, and he or she is what's wrong with the world. And I, I'm, I'm beginning to recognize that what's wrong with the world might be less that and them and he and she, and it might be more the fact that I'm still blind to the image of God in myself and in you. And so it's, um, so this is, this is what I'm playing around with right now, and I'm, I'm not sure what I think about it yet, but let me just throw it out to you. I'm wondering if, um, I, I'm wondering if, if this is true, that until I learn to embrace my identity as a beloved image bearer of God, I'm what's wrong with the world. Do you know? Because so long as I live confused about whose I am and who I am, I have a hard time showing up in a just, compassionate, restorative way on the planet. And so part of my problem is, um, is a blindness to my own inability to embrace whose I am. Uh, and so I want to do some work right now uh, around image of God. Uh, and um, I, I love what Matt said about moving from awareness to activation um, oftentimes when we think about awareness or about seeing, we're thinking about it out there. And I think that's really important. I think there's a lot uh, of awareness that needs to build so that we can move into the space of activation. But the, the, I think the most important awareness that needs to happen, at least for me right now, is, is right here. So that I can show up in the world living confidently out of whose I am. And so here's what, I'm do, here's what I've been doing um, is because I'm living confused of whose I am, I, that, that's an uncomfortable experience. And so to make myself feel better, um, I'm, I'm calling my blindness 2020 vision. I'm identifying my blindness as 2020 vision. And that's destructive. Um, that's destructive. And so um, what I'm learning to do with that is, um, is respond like Bartimaeus. And I'll come back to Bartimaeus in a little bit, but I don't, I don't know if you remember, Bartimaeus was the bro who sat outside of Jericho when Jesus was walking in. And Bartimaeus um, somehow found out that Jesus was coming close by. And so, uh, so when he finds out that Jesus is coming, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he screams out, you know, because he's been sitting there his whole life um, begging for alms, really wanting just to simply see, because if he can see, then he can contribute differently to society, right? So he's sitting there begging for Jesus to come by because he's heard that when Jesus shows up, broken stuff gets fixed, and, and blind people see, and lame people get up and walk. And he's like, this is my chance, so Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he calls out, and everybody's like, oh, Jesus, don't worry, it's just a blind dude. He's been blind forever. He'll be blind forever. Don't worry about him. There's more important things going on. But Jesus won't be bothered by their nonsense and comes up to the blind guy. And, uh, and when he gets close to Bartimaeus, you know what he does? He doesn't heal him. He asks a question. Do you know what he asks? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus, who can see, comes up to the blind guy who is most, most definitely obviously blind. And the seeing guy says to the deaf guy, what do you want me to do for you? Is it not obvious, Jesus? Right? So what do you want me to do for you? And you know what Bartimaeus said? 
I want to see. And I can hear the, I can hear the desperation in Bartimaeus' voice from the pages of the scriptures. I want to see. And that's becoming my prayer right now in the world that we live in that's desperately divided by difference and our inability to see the image of God in ourselves and one another. I want to see, and then Jesus heals him. So I wonder, friends, I wonder if it doesn't, if it doesn't start with us acknowledging that we are yet blind. That our limited perspective, that our, our confusion around the image of God himself, like we don't yet see everything as it is. That my perspective is very, very limited and probably not the comprehensive truth. And so I wonder tonight if we can do some work like Blind Bard Mills. I wonder if we can begin a conversation tonight uh, um, that starts with acknowledging our blindness. It's arrogant of me to consider that I am crystal clear on the image of God in me and in you. But when I get clearer on the image of God in me, when I recognize whose I am, then I'm able to recognize whose you are, and that's a game changer in our relationship. It's a game changer. So um, let's go to work together. Um, If you go to the beginning of your Bible, which is where image of God stuff really begins, um, I think it's important to to think about how and why this particular story was being written down for the first time, right? And so like coming up until this point, this was an oral tradition. And so um, the stories were passed down through sound, like we're telling these stories to one another. And then at some point, it actually starts to get written down. And based on what we're seeing happen in the book of Genesis, especially how Genesis 1 begins, Genesis 1 and the story of creation is actually a response to the, the dominant imperial narrative of the time. And so, like, it's literally a reaction to the dominant story of how creation happened. Whose dominant story was it? Well, it was the Babylonian story. And so this group of people is saying, actually, the Babylonian narrative around how all of this began isn't the accurate story. We think it's this, and they lay it down. Whereas the Babylonian story talks about God's fighting and the, the, the result of their bloodshed is creation and that the human beings actually serve the gods and do the things for the gods that the gods don't want to do and they're, we're subservient and we're despised by the gods. And the Hebrew people are saying, actually, I don't think that's a true story at all. I think God lovingly, intimately created things intentionally, on purpose, inhabited creation, and cares very desperately for all of it, including humanity. So they're responding to the, 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 the dominant culture narrative with their own story. And, um, and in that story, we discover that, um, that God begins to speak existence into being. Now, in Babylon, the understanding... It's a polyistic, theistic space. And so the understanding was that God created a human being, a man, and the, and the dominant man, the king, is the representative of God on the planet. And so the king is the sole image bearer of God on the earth, which means that the king's words are the very words of God. So when the king speaks, whatever he speaks comes into being. Interesting that in Genesis chapter 1, God is portrayed as king because when God speaks things begin to exist. So God is king. Now, as the story goes in Genesis chapter 1, God determines that God is going to make a man. 
And in, uh, in this particular story, um, God creates a man. Now, if we move over to Genesis chapter 2, which is not the, the response to the imperial narrative, but is the indigenous telling of the story. Genesis 2 goes a lot different than Genesis 1. Um, it, it's, it's how they believe that all of this happened. And when they tell that story, it's, it, it pictures God, the creator, entering into the created order, not doing it from a distance or aloof in some way. And he's no longer speaking things into being. Now God enters into the created order. And it's almost like we picture God on God's hands and knees playing in the dirt and shapes the, the form of a man out of the dirt and then does this fascinating thing. He doesn't snap his fingers and man wakes up. Instead, God exhales God's breath into the dirt man, and that anim animates his life, and he wakes up. Amazing. Unlike anything that had been created up until that point, the man was created in the image of God. Really cool. Okay? Now, we're still pretty square with theist tradition, though, right? Because God has created a man to represent him on the earth. And so that, that seems pretty similar. That's not quite new. Yet the only thing that's new is that God is the one who's doing the creating and speaking it into existence. And it seems personal and intimate. And God is in the midst of it. Awesome. Now, what is the first thing that goes wrong in the garden? Anybody? Yeah, aloneness. Aloneness is wrong. It was good, but then it wasn't good for man to be alone. And it's not just about loneliness, it's incomplete, right? So as Genesis 2 goes, the creator puts the man to sleep because it's incomplete. It can't fully image God on the planet, the, 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 the man is not capable of this. So, so the creator puts the man to sleep, takes from his side, and creates woman. They both wake up, and they wake up into a story about the creator that's already in motion. They look at each other and realize that they are the, a more complete expression of who God is and what God is like. Very important to understand in this moment as well that when God created woman, God did not create woman subordinate to man. They were equal. It wasn't woman as opposite of man. It was woman as completion of man. It wasn't woman as opposite of man. It was man as completion of woman. It's this beautiful circle of completion. And together, they far more accurately displayed the image of God than a man could do. It was beautiful. It was really good. It was complete. Now the story is getting new. This is a new thing. Because what we understand is that God has made humanity in God's image, which means that it's not going to be the dominant male anymore who's going to be the sole representation of God's image on the planet. It's going to be humanity, which means that it's going to be um, not one person, but all of humanity are image bearers of God. That's a new story. And it's not just that, that all human beings are image bearers, like I have this much and you have this much, we all are equal in our dignity and our humanity in our filling up of the image of God. This is a new and exciting thing. Three um, paradigm-altering truths here. Number one, every single human being on the planet now bears the image of God and is equal in value, significance, and worth. That's me. That's you. That's the CEO. That's the president. That's the refugee. That's the immigrant. 
That's your scary neighbor. All of us are equal holders of the image of God. But here's the second thing. While every human being on the planet is an image bearer, the individual is not the sole bearer of God's image. See, we live in such an individualistic society that we've probably been taught, I am the image bearer of God. And in isolation and homogeneity, I can image God in an accurate way on the planet, and it's just simply not true. While we all bear the image of God, there's not one individual that bears the sole image of God. We actually need one another. Genesis 1, and 27, this is this moment when we discover the plural pronouns of God. Isn't that interesting? That within the first 30 verses, plural pronouns are used to describe God. And what God creates and says, that is a more complete image of, of what I'm like. It's male and female. It's diverse. It's genderful. And it's mutually submissive. And so if you look at humanity in this moment, a, a humanity that is genderful, diverse, and mutually submissive, that is a more accurate representation of who God is and what God is like. Which, if that's true, then God is not white, male, and violent. God is also not a woman. God is genderful, diverse, and mutually submissive to God's self. How do we know? Because we're created in diversity. And when we are together in diversity, not homogeneity, when we're together in diversity, we most accurately image what God is like on the planet. And that's good news. So let's continue the story. Um, God has created, what God has created and marked in his image is this diverse, genderful, mutually submissive community, a mutually submissive oneness. And then things start to go wrong, right? Um, what happens in Genesis 3? What is the deception that the deceiver deceives with? What's that? God's keeping wisdom away from you? Yeah, what else? Which is a fun way of saying it. I like that answer. <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> You're not enough? Okay, yeah. Yeah, if, if you read Genesis 3, what the deceiver says is you can be like God. Which is so weird because they were created in the image of God to be like God. They were already compassionate, patient, kind, mutually submissive. They were already all of these things. And the crazy surprise is that the deceiver tries to tell them that they could have what they already had. And they bought it. Just like we do. We, like they, are created in the image of God. And we keep on being duped into believing that we don't have what we already have. And so you know what we do? We try to do things and produce and compete to seduce the affection and the attention and the image, the very godliness that we require. Or we compete with one another to grab as much of it for ourselves as we can. Or we dehumanize people who aren't like us because if we dehumanize them, then we can justify to ourselves the lie that I contain more of the image of God than you do. 
So if we actually believed that we were image bearers of God, we would actually believe that we were created by God to be like God, and we would stop being deceived into this craziness that if we did X, Y, and Z more, well, then we would get more godliness or something like that. Right? So the, the deceiver dupes them into believing that, um, that they didn't have what they already had, and so they fell out of the divine dance. They rebelled. They reached for the fruit of power, and when they did, all of shalom was shattered. Every single relationship was shattered. The relationships between myself and God, myself and myself, myself and you, myself and all of creation. And so rather than actually embracing these things in a dance, a divine dance in which we need each other and we are one and we co-create into the future. We live into the brilliance that's already ours. We compete with one another and we consume and we take and we exclude and we use violence of all sorts of different kinds to prove something to ourselves and to others that I'm more than you. Uh, and so th that's, um, that's when we say, when we reach for the fruit of power and all of those relationships were shattered, that's when we say that the creator, the great creator, became the great peacemaker. And part of the way that God did that is God chose a particular bloodline and he taught them how to live as image bearers. It was a way of life that he gave them. He said, your life as image bearers is going to be marked by generosity and, and, and courage, and sacrifice, and compassion, and hospitality. But what happened is that none of that worked for us. So the image bearers created images of gods that were more like us so that we could control them because that suited us better. And as we did that, we traded an alternative way of life that is marked by hospitality and generosity and sacrifice, and our lives became marked by consumerism and exclusion and violence. I could no longer see the image of God marked in me, and, I, and therefore I could no longer see it in you. And if I don't see it in you, you are not with me. You are to be destroyed, conquered. I'm supposed to put you below me so that I can prove to myself and others that I'm better, I'm more. Now, God saw it, of course, and this is the brilliance of our God. God entered back into creation to remind us whose we are. That's the person of Jesus. So when God put on flesh and became a physical image, God actually came into this space to remind us whose we are. Jesus came to the neighborhood to show us what it's like to live confidently in whose we are. Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 17, Paul writes that Jesus is the penultimate revelation of who God is. He is the ultimate image bearer of God, that Jesus came and actually put on display what this alternative way of life marked by hospitality, generosity, and sacrifice looks like. And then I love this moment in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Mark chapter 1. Jesus is walking along the, the banks of the Jordan River, and John the baptizer sees him and says, behold, there's the lamb who's here to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist is clear, like this is the image bearer. 
This is the one who's going to teach us how to live. This is the one who's going to, in the way that he lives, loves, and leads, is going to get us into liberation, into restoration. He identifies Jesus as that. And then he baptizes Jesus. And when John the baptizer reflects on that moment, he says, when that happened, I literally saw the heavens open up and I saw the spirit descend like a dove, which is feminine, by the way. Beautiful. A feminine reality of God gently descend. And then John the Baptist heard the voice of God say, behold, this is my beloved son. And so in this moment, Jesus is identified as a beloved image bearer, not just a a dime store image bearer, a beloved image bearer. Now, here's what's crazy about that. Up until that point, I mean, he was 30, but Jesus hadn't done anything which means that his belovedness was not attached to any of his behavior, any of his accomplishments. Nobody was following him. He was a a nobody. God affirmed him as beloved, not because of what he had done, but because he wanted to. He's a beloved image bearer. Now, Here's what I love about Jesus when we watch his life, okay? If he's here to teach us what it means to be confident in whose we are. We, if we watch Jesus live, if we listen to him teach, um, if we watch him on the cross, if we, if we enter into his life in resurrection, we discover a Jesus who did not tout beloved image bearer as a title, but rather it was a reality that fueled his life. His belovedness as an image bearer didn't set him above, and he's all of a sudden like, hey, I'm a beloved image bearer, and there's only a little bit of that to go out, and I got a lot of it, because like there was a heavenly voice and all that kind of jazz, right? Jesus didn't, didn't tout it as a title. The, the reality of it sunk in, and it fueled the way that he lived his life. Jesus lived woke to whose he was. Now, before you get hot and bothered by the fact that I just used the word woke, because um, I know Moberg likes to use that a lot. Um, Woke does not mean, by the way, that you are becoming aware of social justice or injustice. Um, There are a lot of people who look like me that um, we start to get a little, like, awakened to issues of injustice, um, institutional racism, systems that have been inhabited and fueled by white supremacy, we're starting to wake up to those things and then we go, oh, we're woke. No, no, no. I think we're waking up. And, um, and it's a journey that I've been on for 10 years and I feel like I'm waking up. I'm a rookie to this, right? So when I'm using the word woke, I'm, I'm using Jesus was woke to whose he was, which means that he was fully aware of whose he was, and that liberated him into a life of sacrifice and compassion and others' orientation. Here's the thing. If I live, if I'm woke to whose I am, if I am fully confident that I am beloved, then, then I don't care what you think about me. Do you know how liberating that is? How much of our lives, honestly, If you're to take an assessment of your life, how much of your life, honestly, are you fixated on what God thinks about you, about what other people think about you, or about what you think about yourself? A lot of my life 
is oriented around those things. Way too much of my life is. And I bet that's probably somewhat true for you as well. Yet, if I live woke to whose I am, that I am a beloved image bearer, that is liberating because I don't have to waste any more time worrying about what God thinks about me or what you think about me. I get to just get after it. I get to be liberated into helping you understand whose you are. That is why we're on the planet and table. I think that's maybe why you exist in this region. To remind one another whose you are and to live, not like with a touting the title, like, hey, hey, but actually live fueled by that. Because the way that you live together in diverse, genderful, mutually submissive relationship reminds people out there whose they are. That's what we need. So, so Jesus lived woke to whose he was, which meant that he lived woke to whose others are. So like there's a direct connection between my ability to understand whose I am and my ability to see whose you are too. If it's all foggy here, then it's going to be all foggy here. But the clearer it gets here, the clearer it gets here. And suddenly I go, oh, you are... All of, the, all of the popular constructions that have dehumanized you, that's not true. I know that it's not true because I'm clear on whose I am and whose you are. And so Jesus lived woke to whose he was. He lived woke to whose others were. And so if you think about this, I mean, I just went through off the top of my head. In Matthew chapter 8 alone, um, he, he, he sees whose the outcast is, whose the occupier is, the in-law, literally, the in-law. I have a hard time sometimes seeing, remembering whose my in-law is. Jesus sees the in-law, Peter's in-law, and he sees who she is. He lives awoke to that reality. He's woke to who the mentally ill is. He's woke to who the second-class racialized other is in John chapter 4. He's, he's awake to who the infidel is in John chapter 8. He's awake to who the super-religious is in John chapter 3, to who the traitor is in Luke 19, to who the politician is in John chapter 18. You see, oftentimes for me, I think that being woke to whose I am will help me see whose the marginalized are, and that's true, but it also helps me understand whose the law enforcement is, and whose the politicians are, and whose the power brokers are, and whose the oppressors are, because to be for the oppressed and the marginalized and against or anti these folk does nothing but continue to sever the relationships and expand the divides in our world. So as I wake up to whose I am, I see whose the marginalized are, and I also see whose the margin, marginalizing are, of which I have to include myself in that category. Why? Because I'm a six-foot-two white male. So Jesus lived woke to whose he was. He lived woke to whose others were. And I would argue that his wokeness was the thing that got him killed. And so for those of us who think like, ooh, I'm woke, and we like kind of wear that as a badge of honor. I'm woke. Yeah, woke people die. Woke people die because the system kills us. 
Because when we get woken up to whose we are and whose you are, suddenly we begin to recognize, wow, all of these systems that we've created to benefit people who look like me, yeah, that can't happen anymore because it's killing people. And then when we start to talk about those things, where we begin to organize to actually see justice happen in our world, to benefit those who have been marginalized, all of a sudden the power brokers get threatened by that and they begin to discredit you. You begin to lose your reputation. Um, you, 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 get, you get in trouble for things that you wouldn't have gotten in trouble for before. Crazy stuff starts to happen to woke people. I would argue that Jesus' wokeness got him killed. He eventually becomes the victim of an unjust criminal justice system and ultimately dies of capital punishment by the empire. And because he did, thanks be to God, he woke back up. Ephesians 1 and 2 says that in that moment, we who were dead came alive. Romans says that we who were once enemies are now reconciled family. Because Jesus lived woke, died woke, and woke back up, Ephesians chapter 5 says that we are beloved. We're beloved. Now, the word used in Ephesians chapter 5 is really interesting. Uh, Paul had two choices to talk about the experience of being a child. He says, therefore, as dearly beloved children, Paul could have said, um, he, he could have said, therefore, as dearly beloved huios, which is the Greek word for like the general experience of being a son or daughter. Instead, he, he says, therefore, as dearly beloved techna, very interesting word for Paul to use in that moment. The word techna, rather than being the general experience of being a son or daughter, techna implies being a, an only child. And what Paul is saying is the cross and the empty tomb exposes the audacious reality that God loves every single one of us as though we are his only. That God doesn't dole out image and belovedness in like these little portions like I split up M&Ms for my kids in little Dixie cups. God dumps the whole bag in my mouth because I'm his only. That's amazing. Now, here is the heresy for tonight, if it hasn't already been dropped. <laughs> because, you know, orthodoxy is only the most popular heresy. Um, someone smarter than I said that. I can't remember his name. Um, here's the heresy for the evening, or maybe the really, really good news. I'm going to make the argument that we are not just image bearers. We are also beloved. And I'm not just talking about people who claim a connection to Jesus. Now, before you call me a crazy universalist, the Jesus that I see in the scriptures puts on, a, puts on display a God who loves all of humanity lavishly, extravagantly, audaciously, not because of anything that we have done or have not done, but because God wants to. So we are not just image bearers. We are beloved image bearers, all of us.
That's me. That's you. That's my family. That's my neighbors. That's my other. And that's also my enemy. Now, the only thing that we can do as we move into relationship with Jesus is become more aware of that belovedness and begin to actually embrace it and let it be the fuel of our lives. Because if we are so beloved, Paul continues in Ephesians 5, chapter 1 and 2, therefore, as dearly beloved Tecna, be imitators of the one who loves you that much. So as I make a decision for Jesus, it's not in that decision that I finally become the beloved. It's that I begin to grow in my awareness of it. I begin to embrace it, and it becomes the fuel through which I live a life of belovedness. I live out of that belovedness, and in so doing, I assume the posture of the cross on behalf of you, in which you will discover your belovedness too and begin to wake up to it more and more. So we're beloved image bearers. Now, how do we wake up to our own identity as beloved image bearers? Let me, um, let me offer a couple of thoughts. Um, first of all, I think we need to learn from the practices of Bartimaeus. Number one, acknowledge that we are blind. Or we don't see clearly yet. So an acknowledgement goes a long way. I don't... I, th- there are people... There are groups of people, there are generalized groups of people that I don't yet see as beloved image bearers. Either they've hurt me, or I just hate what they say, or one of them did a thing, and I have made their thing generally true about an entire category of people, and I do not yet see them as beloved image bearers of God. It is important for me to say that and to acknowledge it. I don't yet see perfectly clear. That's what Bartimaeus said. I want to see, because I can't yet. Second thing, ask for healing. Jesus was a sight healer. And, and, and the great news is that he wasn't a sight healer once upon a time. Jesus is still a sight healer. So what would it be like for us to begin to ask for healing? I think teaching series and films and relationships, I think God actually uses those things as a part of our healing. It's as I actually start to get proximate with people who are different than me and look into their eyes in relationship that I begin to recognize, whoa, I see better now. So acknowledge it, ask for healing, and then number three, do whatever we need to do to remember whose we are. Do whatever you need to do to remember whose you are. I think this reframes the whole contemplative practices thing or the devotions. And I don't know how many of y'all like grew up in the church and, and got gold stars for doing devotions or like somehow were taught that, that if you do your quiet time frequently, somehow you'll seduce God's affection better than people who don't or, or whatever. Like that's a thing. That's a thing in like American Christianity, right? It's like our fundamental, fundamentalism. And um, I, I don't think our contemplative practices have anything to do with seducing God's attention or affection. I think they need to have everything to do with us being reminded whose we are. When we see Jesus engage in contemplative practices, my hunch is that a part of it was Jesus was probably losing sight of whose he was. Why? Because he was a human being. I mean, Jesus and all, but he's a human being. 
You know, there are times when stuff is so broken around us that I'm like, I don't know which way it's up anymore. I can imagine Jesus had those moments. So what would he do? He would do whatever he needed to do to step away so that he could remember whose he was. And when he remembered whose he was, every time you see him act after the contemplative moment, it is focused. It is kingdom-oriented. Broken stuff gets fixed. You watch it happen every time. And so I don't know what this looks like for you. I don't know what the frequency looks like for you. I know for me, like, part of doing everything that I need to do involves when I go to bed and when I wake up and what happens in the morning for me before my family does. That's just for me, you know? But I f- I'm finding out that I have to create space of silence and solitude so that I can remember whose I am. Because if I'm not found by Jesus in the beginning of the day, I will not find Jesus the rest of the day. That's what Mother Teresa said, and I believe it. That's my lived experience. So friends, we need to figure out whatever it is that we need to do to remember whose we are because that impacts how you show up today um, like crazy. Second thing, um, how do we wake up to the belovedness in others? Um, there, I, I think we need to like these teaching series, like what's happening in this community because I'm watching from afar and I think it's cool what's going on. Dee McIntosh was here and she rattled your cages and that was awesome. Um, because one of the things that we as dominant culture folk, because I think primarily we're dominant culture folk, we actually have to get comfortable with discomfort. Like if if your cage got rattled, okay. Let's get curious about that. Why? It's okay that your cage got rattled. My cage gets rattled all the time because I hang out with people like Dee all the time. They rattle my cage. I need my cage rattled, which means that it's growing my capacity to have rattled cage, you know, and um, and that's good because when my cage is rattled, that usually indicates to me that that's the space where the spirit is at work. That's where the power of the gospel needs to continue to transform me and heal my sight and fuel me forward in a way that is kingdom-oriented. Um, and so uh, continuing to learn, um, expand our learning from about to from. Like, let's, let's keep learning about stuff, but let's keep learning from people, too. You know? And so that's going to require that we get proximate, we get close, we get curious, we ask good questions, and we grow in our comfort with discomfort. Um, let's maybe see it as a, as a signal of something good going on. I had a bunch of slides, but I'm terrible at doing it myself. Can you bring up the absolute last slide? See, if, see what you can do. Um, I want to close with an image, but before I do, there's a, there's a resource that we put together um, to help us uh, get in touch with whose we are and whose others are. Um, and so if you take out your phone right now, um, go ahead and do that. Um, text the word PEACE, all capitals, PEACE, to the number 66866. The word PEACE to 66866. It's going to ask you for an email address, and then we're going to send you a set of resources for the next four to six weeks that will just help you cultivate some practices and some habits to get in touch with whose you are and whose others are. Um, and so, uh, so that, that will equip you um, with some resources to take a journey here. Um, I'll, I'll close with this. Um, that's peace to 66866. This is a, this is a Baroque-era painting by Peter Paul Rubens. It's the, um, it's the, um, the, the feast at Simon the Pharisee's home, um, 1620s. Now, what you'll note 
I think here is, uh, is that everyone's really Caucasian. Do you see that? Um, and what you also note in the top left-hand corner is that the only person of color is the servant, the slave. The reason I point that out, and that's not the point of this picture, but the reason that I do point that out is that what we're struggling with as, um, as folks seeing the image of God and people who are different than us, it is a human problem. It is, not a, it is not a problem of our era. It has been going on since the beginning. We see it captured in art like this. Uh, and, and so I think as we grow in our ability to remember whose we are and whose others are and see that, we start to view pictures like this differently. We notice, whoa, everyone's Caucasian. Jesus is white. That's weird because he was, and he was a dark-skinned Palestinian Jew, right? The only person of color, look at that, up in the upper corner serving the food. Interesting. The thing that I want to point out here, because remember what happens in the feast of, uh, at, at Simon the Pharisees, is that Mary comes in and she brings in a, a jar of perfume that is like a year's worth of wages, right? She's the one who sees who Jesus is and understands what it is that's about to happen here. So she breaks that thing open and in a lavish way, a way that puts on display the lavishness of God's love. She is the image bearer, the most accurate image bearer of who God is in that moment. I'm going to break it all open and dump it on you because I want to. You're worth it, right? In Baroque-era painting, the color yellow is, a, is the color that's, that's usually draped over women who are prostitutes. And so what you see um, kind of falling off of her is a yellow garment. Do you see it? Blue, in Baroque-era art, is the color for purity. So pay attention to what's happening here. Jesus, who lives woke to whose he is, means that he's woke to whose others are. And the way that Jesus looks at her causes the yellow to fall away, and it helps her to become who she really is. Now, Simon the Pharisee, all he sees is yellow when he looks at her. But when Jesus sees her, he doesn't see yellow. He doesn't see the constructions of the dehumanizing popular construction about her. Jesus doesn't see the things that maybe she's done or has been accused of. When Jesus looks at her, he sees a beloved image bearer. He sees blue. And so table, that you would continue to learn how to see whose you are, such that when you look at other people, it creates a trail of yellow. There's yellow falling off all over the place. For the sake of a desperately divided world, we need you to see whose you are so that you can see whose others are. That's God's word for us tonight.